You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Several dogs aren't barking today. Still no sign of the Reaper botnet doing anything. An update on Bad Rabbit, which for some reason seems to have hop-hop-hopped quietly away from its infrastructure. Other forms of more conventional ransomware, however, remain in circulation in the wild. It looks as if Kaspersky software might have stumbled across NSA files after all. The U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee has voted to reauthorize Section 702 surveillance authorities through the end of 2025. And we have notes on ICS from Atlanta. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, October 26, 2017. Most attention today has been given to Bad Rabbit. Experts are increasingly convinced that it's the work of the same threat actors responsible for NotPetya. The consequences of NotPetya were so heavy that Bad Rabbit is being watched with considerable concern. FireEye, ESET, Avira, McAfee, and others have noticed something curious and interesting about Bad Rabbit, however. The servers and sites Bad Rabbit's controllers use seem to have shut down after just a few hours of activity. The controllers appear to have taken down their own infrastructure. Why they might have done so is a matter of conjecture. Some observers have speculated that they feared detection, got spooked, and tried for a quick getaway. That's one possibility, likeliest if Bad Rabbit is a pure criminal caper. There are, of course, other possible explanations— The incident was misdirection. The incident accomplished whatever it was intended to accomplish. The controllers found they were wreaking unintended and undesirable consequences, and so on. It's very early in the incident, and as usual, one expects that it will take the experts some time to sort things out. Other ransomware remains active. Iran's Computer Emergency Response Team's Coordination Center reports that variants of tyrant ransomware are circulating in that country. Komodo has been tracking what it characterizes as a fourth wave of Icarus ransomware using the Assassin file extension, and Fishme notes that Sage ransomware has assumed a more convincing form with a more engaging user interface and easier payment options. The U.S. Senate has moved closer to enacting a version of Section 702 Surveillance Authority for NSA. There are competing versions circulating in Congress, but on Tuesday, the Senate Intelligence Committee voted 12-3 to 3 in closed session to send legislation to the floor that would renew Section 702 through the end of 2025. Kaspersky Labs' Transparency and Charm counteroffensive may have hit a bump. 
The company acknowledged that its security software did indeed scoop up some NSA tools from a machine that should never have had them in the first place. They say they promptly deleted the sensitive files, but some of the material they say they inadvertently pulled in turned up in the hands of the shadow brokers. It's not known, of course, that the brokers got their goods via Kaspersky tools, but as they say inside the Beltway, the optics aren't good. In industry news, cybersecurity investment capital firm Allegis Capital announced a name change to Allegis Cyber, as well as the appointment of Dave DeWalt as a managing director. Mr. DeWalt is well known in the cybersecurity industry, having previously been the CEO of both FireEye and McAfee. We spoke with Mr. DeWalt along with Allegis Cyber founder Bob Ackerman on the occasion of the announcement at their Data Tribe startup incubator. We begin with Mr. Ackerman. For us, Allegis Capital was the, was the first dedicated cyber venture fund in the world. And uh, building on that success, we're always looking for ways to where do we go next. And so Data Tribe is a startup studio to begin creating companies here in Maryland was part of that initiative. We're also announcing that, uh, that you know, D- my good friend Dave DeWalt, sort of one of the legends of the cyber industry, is joining Allegis uh, as a managing director. And, you know, for us, what that really brings is, you know, a lot of these young cyber companies, they're, they're phenomenal solution innovators, but they struggle on the commercial side. Um, and so bringing Dave into the team does a couple things for us. It, you know, it brings his network, his operating experience, you know, to bear and supporting our young companies. We're also going to extend our investment focus a bit to early growth. So historically, Allegis has been an early stage uh, venture firm focused on cyber um, with Data Tribe, we're now incubating companies. With Dave joining, we're also extending the platform uh, to include early growth. And the idea is that we want to be able to engage with the best entrepreneurs, regardless of their stage of development, and really create in Allegis, now being rebranded Allegis Cyber, kind of the go to one stop shop for entrepreneurs who are doing meaningful things in cyber. Dave DeWalt believes the Mid Atlantic region has untapped potential. Well, one thing to understand is the amount of talent that sits in this Washington, Baltimore, Virginia area. And so a guy who spent 30 years in Silicon Valley building companies, 20 years in cybersecurity, you recognize how much talent is sitting in this region. But uh, when you sort of look at the amount of engineering talent and then you look at the access to capital and you look at how many commercial companies are produced, those ratios are quite a bit off. So here, you know, this announcement of both Allegis Cybers Fund as well as Data Tribe and its incubation model and the combination of those two really create a platform for government and its ecosystem to roll out commercial products and roll them out successfully. So this has really not been done before to really watch the capabilities of incubating a company, seeding a company, launching a company, making it successful from, from cradle to grave, so to speak, and it's about time, because from one man's view, the threat landscape is driving a necessity for this type of solution to be built. When we think about investing in this space, what we see is where, where the innovation you know, is, uh, is evolving. You know, we, we can look at things like threat intelligence. That's pretty well sorted out. Uh, endpoint, first generation, pretty well sorted out. So I think in some of these legacy areas where there's a lot of innovation, I think we've wrapped our arms around the problem and the solution. We're probably going to see some consolidation. But what happens is we see new frontiers, new domains for innovation around cyber opening up. So, you know, 
we're real active, for example, in identity authentication. And we think in a digital economy, uh, authentication, in fact, is one of the core pillars of cybersecurity. But you also think about social. You know, you think about consumer. You think about industrial. You think about satellite. You think about cloud. These are all emerging domains that all of a sudden are sort of on the front line of cyber threats. And that's where we see a lot of the innovation shifting going forward. That's Bob Ackerman along with Dave DeWalt from Allegis Cyber. Today is the final day of the ICS Cybersecurity Conference. Our staff down in Atlanta found two presentations this morning particularly interesting. Stephen Ridley, Senrio's CTO and founder, spoke about the Devil's Ivy IoT vulnerability his company's researchers discovered earlier this year. But his main points were, We hate to break it to you, but OT is IT and ICS is IoT. And code reuse is vulnerability reuse. Hardware reuse is vulnerability reuse. Code and hardware reuse are pervasive across verticals, he argued. The other presentation that merits a brief mention was by Dr. Peter Vincent Pry, representing the EMP Task Force on National and Homeland Security. He made everyone's flesh creep with an account of the EMP threat, that's electromagnetic pulse, that's not just to the power grid, but to civilization itself. EMP occurs naturally in the form of solar geomagnetic storms. We've seen big ones in 1859 and 1921, before the dawn of the electrical civilization we now enjoy. And Pry says, you ain't seen nothing yet. We're due for another big one. And it needn't be the sun behaving badly either. Mr. Kim would do just fine. EMP can also be induced artificially, either by a nuclear weapon or on a smaller scale, by a non-nuclear EMP kit. An EMP attack that's well within the demonstrated capabilities of a failed state like North Korea could, Pry argued, take down the U.S. power grid for 18 months with an attendant loss of life on a catastrophic scale. The Atlanta meetings have highlighted the challenges of securing industrial systems where environments and installations vary so widely that highly tailored security measures seem a practical inevitability. There's an interesting divide on evidence at the ICS Cybersecurity Conference. The engineers who operate plants worry about doing so safely and reliably. They tend to fall into the more pessimistic camp. They're very much aware of the dependencies among systems, including surprising dependencies, to the possibilities of cascading failure and to the difficulty of keeping complex systems in equilibrium. The cyber operators tend toward the optimistic. They're engaged, at least imaginatively and sometimes actually, in thinking about attack, and they perceive all of the attacker's difficulties that are so familiar to military operators. To be sure, the attacker has the initiative and can choose the time and place of engagement. Beyond that, the defender has advantages too. It's not for nothing that conventional tactical wisdom looks for a three-to-one advantage before going on the attack. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. 
Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, uh, we have an article here from Politico. Uh, The title is Cash Strap States Brace for Russian Hacking Fight. Certainly, we've been seeing more and more information coming out about uh, voting systems, not just influence operations, but perhaps uh, more than we thought, voting systems themselves may have been uh, accessed, um, explored, probed, if you will. Um, This article digs into uh, the fact that some states are having some trouble coming up with money to properly defend themselves. Yeah, so we know the threat is there. Obviously, the administration has denied uh, Russia's involvement to a certain extent in the 2016 presidential election. But the intelligence community has largely accepted uh, their conclusions. And we know that efforts will be made to affect the integrity of our voting systems, including our voter databases, which contain personal information on American voters. The problem is that states are indeed cash-strapped. There was a federal statute that passed in the wake of the contested 2000 election called the Help America Vote Act, in which federal money was appropriated to update uh, electoral systems. For the most part, states have run through that money. They no longer have access to those funds. In addition, a majority of states, I think almost all 50 of them require by their state constitutions a balanced budget. So they're far less flexible to address growing threats, whatever they may be, than the federal government, which can operate at a deficit. Uh, So many states of all political persuasions have been pleading with the federal government to offer some sort of assistance uh, to protect the integrity of uh, voting systems. So far, uh, Congress has been resistant To say the least, I think one of the committee chairmen of jurisdiction, Senator Richard Shelby of Alabama, basically said that this was a state problem. Elections are a a state domain and they need to figure it out themselves, uh, which I think is technically true. But this is even though elections are traditionally administered at the state level, we're beginning to recognize that this is a national problem that might require a national solution. And it's not just the potential that our systems are going to be hacked. It's about the confidence and the integrity of our electoral system. And uh, losing that confidence, even in the absence of some sort of attack, uh, is bad enough in and of itself. So I think it's I think it's very concerning. 
Yeah, explain the, the the politics behind this for us. I mean, it seems to me that uh, assuring the integrity, as you say, of our, our electoral system would be uh, an issue without much controversy coming from either side, but uh, not necessarily so. Yeah, so I think part of it is President Trump's insistence that the Russian hacking did not have any tangible impact if it did exist on the 2016 presidential election. And frankly, some of his self-consciousness about the fact that people think his victory is partially due to that election hacking. I mean, I think that's a large part of the partisan response. And then there's also a more legitimate ideological opposition among Republicans to appropriate federal money for an area that's traditionally been in the state domain. According to our Constitution, states administer their own elections. And so I can understand philosophically why some political conservatives uh, would want to keep it that way. The problem is you can have that ideology, but you still have to put up with the impacts. Whether the states are able to come up with funds to address the problems themselves is an extremely open question. And you can have an ideological opposition, but that's not going to solve a a very pressing problem. So you have to decide whether you want that ideological opposition to supersede your ability to address uh, a national problem. You know, Russia is not only going to be attacking a limited number of blue states. They have uh, broad, wide reaching capabilities. So I think uh, it's a national problem that needs addressing, even though I understand the reluctance to devote uh, federal tax dollars to an area that has traditionally been in uh, under state control. And there's also this article mentions an election assistance commission, uh, which uh, already exists. And one of the leading Democrats uh, to address this issue, Senator Klobuchar of uh, Minnesota, who over whose committee oversees elections, is pushing a bill that would put the commission in charge of creating digital defense standards and would authorize grants to help implement those standards. Uh, That is a bill that's widely supported among Democrats. But again, you see this resistance on the Republican side, um, largely due to uh, the appropriation of federal money. And frankly, this this idea that a lot of this is sour grapes among Democrats for having lost the 2016 presidential election. All right, Ben Yellen, thanks again for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. 
Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.